Thank you, choir, for that reminder that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. He is Lord of all heaven and earth, and He is Lord of all who have trusted in Him. And so we come to this time in our service where we're going to break the word of life together, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. And this is a uh, new study that I want to do for the new year. We're going to, over the next or the majority of this year, we're going to be marching through verse by verse through the book of Romans and working through as we study and understand this deep, theologically rich book in the Bible. In fact, most scholars think that this is the most theologically rich book in all of the Bible. And so I've been preparing for this really for probably about a year now, reading up on it and studying, and I'm excited because I'm finally getting to teach it now that I've read several books on it and and, uh, prepared for it. And so we're going to begin today by looking at Paul's introduction to the book of Romans in by looking at Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 and we're going to read verses 1 through 17 together as we begin today. Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 1 God's word says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this study in the book of Romans today, Lord, we have such a powerful book before us and, and uh, such a beautiful teaching on what the gospel is and what it should mean for us as Christians. Lord, I pray as we begin to open that, that beauty to, 
to study it more deeply. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds that we might be drawn to your son and that in that we might leave this place ready to serve you and to live righteously in this dying world. Father, I pray that you would bless us now in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So sometime between 50 and 54 A.D., the Apostle Paul sat down somewhere on his third missionary journey through Asia Minor, which is along the, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. And he sits down to write a letter to a church that he had never visited before, which is the church at Rome. And Paul had experienced great successes in the three missionary journeys that he had already gone through and was finishing up on this third one. And he had established churches in every major city in Asia Minor. But there still existed one other frontier, the western half of the Roman Empire. Now, if you know your geography, if you know your history, you know that the Roman Empire was effectively split in half along the, the coast of Greece and down along the Mediterranean Sea. And you had what was known as the western half of the Roman Empire and the eastern half. In fact, in the later years of the Roman Empire, they were literally split between rulers, uh, between east and west. Now, for Paul and the apostles, the eastern half of the Roman Empire was very familiar to them. A lot of the culture and the languages of the eastern half of the Roman Empire were very similar to their own. They traded with those peoples regularly. They knew the languages. They knew the customs. They knew a lot of stuff about them. But the western half of the Roman Empire was completely foreign to them. The, the western half, if you notice there in verse, um, in verse 14, Paul says that I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Effectively, what he's saying there is he's splitting again the Roman Empire. The eastern half was Greek-speaking and largely Greek-influenced, and the western half was really Latin-speaking and was influenced more by uh, Celtic and barbarian German practices. And so they were divided in that way. And Paul and the rest of the apostles were very unfamiliar with the region of the western half of the Roman Empire. And so if Paul is going to set out on a new missionary journey into the western half of the Roman Empire for the sake of the kingdom of God, he is going to need help. For one... He's going to need people from the western half of the empire, much like the people from the city of Rome itself, who could help him in his connections along the way. But he's also going to need a point to launch from. He's going to need a place that he can come back to for, uh, to re be renewed and refurbished. And he's going to need a place of financial support if he's going to launch this western mission. So he writes to the church in Rome to let them know that he plans to visit because he needs their help and he wants to help them as well. Now, the church at Rome was a fascinating church and is a fascinating church to Paul. You can get that in the introduction that we've just read. He's fascinated by the fact that the Roman church is stable and it's also well thought of throughout the 
throughout the world and throughout the rest of the church. You'll notice in verse 8, he says that their faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, this church is fascinating because no one has ever been able to really say how the Roman church came to be. Now, there's some traditions that say that Peter established it and, and, and maybe some other apostle established it, but there is absolutely no evidence that there was any apostle or pastor that ever established the Roman church. The Roman church, the church of Rome, just all of a sudden popped up. And not only did it all of a sudden pop up, but it all of a sudden popped up well-established, well-taught, and committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The best evidence that we have for how it came to be is that there was some unknown traveler from Rome who was in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples and 3,000 people were saved. Now, I like to imagine that perhaps there was one person or maybe a hundred people out of that 3,000 who were visitors from Rome. And when they went back to their hometown in the capital city of Rome, they began to preach and teach the gospel and formed a church there and established what became known as the Church of Rome. So if you consider that Paul doesn't know anything about these believers and they don't know anything about him, and you add to that the fact that Paul was formerly a persecutor of the church, you can kind of start to get an idea that Paul has a real challenge ahead of himself if he is going to ask for the help of this church. If he's going to gain their support and if he's going to go and preach to them and and ask that they hear him, he needs to cut to the heart of what they have in common. What could he possibly say that would take grab the attention of this church that has no connection to him whatsoever other than their faith in Jesus Christ? What could he possibly say that would get them to open their hearts to receive him and to listen to him as an apostle and to receive his teaching and support him in his ministry? The one thing that he can say is the one thing that he is going to spend the next 16 chapters fleshing out. And that is that the Roman church and he have the same hope. They have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Romans, the book of Romans, is wholly committed to explaining in full measure what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, what it means doctrinally, what it means for our lives. And it is committed to doing that in a way that no other book of the Bible does. So that brings us to the theme of of the entire book. And the theme of the entire book is boiled down into two verses right here in this introduction that we've just read. And that is in verses 16 and 17. Let's read that again just to refresh our memories on it. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
Now, I would encourage you very strongly, if you haven't already, because this used to be a major verse that we would memorize or passage we would memorize in in Bible drill and things like that. I would encourage you, if you've never memorized this ver- these, these verses, uh, to go and memorize Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, because it is jam-packed full of meaning that I hope to get to a little bit of today. So Paul cuts very to the very heart of the bond that he and the Roman church have by defining the significance of the gospel itself. And Paul defines the, the gospel in three statements that I want to look at today. And we're going to look at them actually in reverse. We're going to start with the end of verse 17 and go backwards through these three statements that Paul makes about the gospel. First, in verse 17... Paul says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now, this this Greek word that Paul uses here for righteousness is a big deal to Paul. And it's the word, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but dakasini, dakasini, okay? The the word uh, dakeo is going to show up time and again. We won't realize it because we're reading, reading it in English, but it's going to show up time and again in this book. It is a big deal to Paul to talk about how we can be declared righteous before God. Now, when we think of righteousness, more than likely what we think of is the idea of moral purity. And there is an element of moral purity in the concept of righteousness. But for Paul, in the book of Romans, when he talks about righteousness, his main concern is something bigger than that. His main concern is the idea of the world being set right. How is it that the world is to be set right? How are we to be set right personally? But also, how is the world to be set right with God? It's closely aligned to our idea, our concept of equity. So the form of this, this form of righteousness was of a great concern to the Old Testament Israel. In fact, you find in Psalm 94 verses 4 through 6, this very concern mentioned when it says, O Lord, how long shall the, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and sojourner and murder the, follow, uh, the, the fatherless. From the fall of Adam all the way through to Israel's enslavement in Egypt, the wicked brought about great suffering on the weak and the innocent. And even after Israel's miraculous deliverance from Egypt, they were still persecuted by all the nations that they went to along their way to the promised land. Yet at every turn, God brought his vengeance on the wicked and he protected the nation of Israel. He sent plagues on Egypt. He gave the Israelites great victories in Canaan. And while he did this, He also gave the nation of Israel laws that ensured or were to ensure that they lived in righteousness and equity. 
And so they were not to be like the other nations that they were surrounded by. They were not to live like the nations that had persecuted them. Instead of capturing people and bringing them into slavery, Israel was ordered to execute the enslaver. Instead of taking advantage of servants and foreigners, Israel was to provide weekly rest for everyone, regardless of their social standing. But you know the rest of how this story goes. Israel failed to live up to the righteous, uh, righteousness that God required. They accepted the practices of the pagan nations that surrounded them. They forsook the Sabbath and failed to per- pursue justice for the oppressed. Even their best kings, Solomon and David, enslaved, committed adultery, and murdered. It seemed that the world was not going to be set right by this nation that was given to be a light to the world. Yet hope dawned in Israel when it was least expected. After 400 years under a foreign rule, a little baby boy is brought to a temple in Jerusalem. An old man named Simeon sees this baby boy and begins to sing in Luke chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus was born to set things right. Jesus was born to set things right in this world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul says that Jesus is the wisdom and the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus sets things right, first of all, by revealing the true way that life really is. He reveals the true way to live. Time and again, he was confronted by the religious leaders who selfishly misused the law. They enjoyed Uh, manipulating the law to their own advantage. And he would teach that it was not enough to technically avoid adultery while fantasizing about a woman. It was not enough to avoid murder while hating someone else. Jesus revealed that true righteousness begins with the heart. True righteousness does not begin with your outward actions. After all, we can all avoid the Big Ten if we just put our, our, our uh, best foot forward and, and, uh, and avoid doing those things. But we cannot avoid the desires of our heart. And we cannot hide from God the fact that we really want something else. The true issue is not an issue of our outward actions, but it is an issue of our heart. And what Jesus reveals is that everyone is ultimately unrighteous at heart. But there's another way that Jesus sets things right. For after all, it wouldn't be good news if Jesus just came to point out that everybody has a flaw, that everybody's heart is corrupt. Jesus did far more than that. Jesus lived in heartfelt righteousness when we could not. He saw the marginalized and the abused. He cared for the children. 
He loved His enemy. He loved His enemy all the way to the cross. And on that cross, Jesus died at the hands of wicked men so that the wrath of God against our unrighteousness might be satisfied. His righteous heart was pierced so that our iniquity and lust and hate could be forgiven. However, if the story just ended there, Jesus would be yet another victim of the iniquity, inequity of this wicked world. But the story doesn't just end there. Jesus rose again from the dead. And in that resurrection, He brought new life for those who believe in Him. And that resurrection life brings me to the second statement that I want to look at from Paul in this, in this verse in these verses. In verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, everyone who believes in Christ has a different kind of life. They have an eternal life that is full of his spirit. Where once we pursued our own selfish desires, now we pursue and long for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where once we hated our enemies, now we have the power to forgive them. Jesus gives the power of His righteousness to all who believe. As Paul puts it at the end of verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. We receive this gift of God's righteousness when we trust in Jesus Christ. This is so different from the way that the world thinks about righteousness. The world thinks about righteousness, uh, they think that righteousness is gained by having complete control over one's life. And I know all of y'all have set your, your uh, New Year's goals and you've set your resolutions and, and you'll be committed to them for about three days because that's about as how, how long as I'm committed to them. But really, that's kind of the way the world views righteousness. You know, if I just pick up the right program, if I just order some Weight Watchers or some Nutrisystem, if I just, if I just get on the right uh, regimen, then I'll get control of my life. And righteousness is viewed in that way a lot of times that if I just have complete control of my life, then I'll, I, won't, uh, I can master my body, I can master my finances, I can master my lust, and then I'll finally be righteous. But if the problem starts with our hearts, then we can as easily master our lives as we can tame a lion. The way to righteousness the way to the righteousness that God requires begins with letting go. It begins with confessing that you're not your own master and you never were. And confessing that Jesus is. That is faith. It is trusting that Jesus is the Lord of this world and that He has done exactly what He said He would do in dying for our sins and rising again for our justification, and that He will come again to fully redeem us and make us new. And when you trust in Him and His work, you have His righteousness by faith. 
And notice too that this salvation that Christ brings through faith is available to everyone who believes. Paul says it is available to Jew and to Greek. Now this is shorthand for the way a Jew would speak about the entire world. Okay, They would say Jew and Greek to say Jew and everybody who's not a Jew. So in other words, this power of God that comes to us through the gospel, this righteousness that only Jesus has, this salvation that only He can bring, it is available to everyone, regardless of social standing, regardless of race, regardless of background. It is available to everyone who believes. And the final statement that Paul makes about the gospel is at the beginning of verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now here is the measure of true saving faith. Now in our day, faith is made easy. In fact, we've condensed it down to the point of just being a good feeling that you have in your heart. Many think, well, if I just believe in my heart, then that's enough. You know, there's no need to go down front and talk to the pastor and confess my faith in Jesus. There's no need to get in the water back here and be humiliated in baptism. But friend, I hate to tell you, but that is not true faith. Saving faith is not ashamed of Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes to his glory of his Father. Paul proved that he was not ashamed. And he proved that by boldly proclaiming Jesus at the risk of his own life. He was beaten. He was driven out of town. He was nearly killed numerous times for the sake of his faith in Jesus Christ. Saving faith is unashamed for people to know it. Won't you show your faith in Christ today by making it known to this congregation? Brothers and sisters, because of what Jesus has done, we have been set right with God. And in turn, Jesus has given us the power through His Spirit to live in such a way that we set things right too. In fact, that is what we're saved to do. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then there is no excuse for why you cannot forgive your enemy. Because you have been forgiven and set right by God. And therefore, you can forgive others. If you are in Christ, then there is no excuse as to why you cannot care for the least of these. Because you have the power of God in you through the presence of His Spirit. You can overcome the reluctance. You can overcome the difficulty of finances. You can overcome whatever obstacle there is preventing you from living the way that God has called you to live and serving as He has called you to serve because you have the power of God unto salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So may we live in the righteousness of the gospel as we leave this place today.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the hope of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and for the righteousness that He has brought to us through His death and His resurrection. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not trusted in You, that they would receive that Gospel by faith, that they would receive the righteousness of God by trusting wholly in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that You would bless us now as we continue to worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward and and help with the administration of the Lord's Supper.